And what we're finding today is how can we have all these churches on all these corners with all these preachers and all these members and all these leaders and all these programs and still have all this mess? There's a dead monkey on the line somewhere. That's the voice of Dr. Tony Evans, the senior pastor at Oak Cliff Fellowship Bible Church in Dallas, Texas, and a nationally known and well-loved speaker and author of more than 100 books. At a recent Family Foundation Pastor Summit, he gave a convicting message on how churches can redeem the culture instead of surrendering to it. Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, with our president, Victoria Cobb. Well, welcome back, everyone. It's great to have you back with us. I hope everyone had a very blessed and restful Christmas. Maybe it may not have been restful for everyone, um, but we hope there were special moments for you and your family. And I just want to mention at the outset here that this is the one time a year when a lot of our staff have the opportunity to actually get to travel a little bit, you know, outside of work travel and see family that they don't usually see. And so we do have more than usual bringing you some special speeches that you don't get to hear elsewhere. So thank you for just bearing with us on that, but also being able to enjoy these, I think, exclusive opportunities to hear from some pretty big name speakers. And of course, this week, we're bringing you a very special speech from Dr. Tony Evans. Yeah, uh, we got this opportunity to have him and we brought him actually for pastors specifically. And that's why um, I know a lot of people are going, wait, he came and you didn't invite me. <laughs> this was a really special moment. We had our pastor summit, which is just where we bring hundreds of pastors together across the state, um, really for messages that are designed for them that are uniquely important to them because of the role that they have in shepherding the church. And so um, it was just a really special opportunity for us. Yeah, and he talked specifically about how churches can really kind of step it up and have a redemptive impact in the education realm on school districts right in their neighborhood. And I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but we've seen re research showing that by age 13, a lot of people's worldview is really established by that time. And then you got to look at the number of hours spent for a lot of kids in public schools. So I'm just going to list some of these stats your average person spends at least 9,500 hours in the school system. At the same time, guess how much, you know, that same child might spend in church. It's around maybe 2,000 hours in the church. So you are looking at it almost five times the amount, the hours in the school than they do in the church. And we've not even talked about how families are trying to fight against that with their family time. Well, I think that's it. And that was the urgency we were trying to give to pastors is this idea that they're trying to do something spiritual in the lives of the families in their church that happens on Sunday mornings, might happen on Wednesday nights, might be a segment of their week, but they are up against indoctrination and just culture that infiltrates in that school building so much of the rest of the week. And we just really kind of wanted to help them understand that just engaging within your church building probably isn't going to get the job done and that, that it does have to matter to our churches what's going on in the education space. And so um, I think they got some, some conviction in, in these talks. I, th I think there was yeah. some really strong messages. Well, you could not have a better representation of that challenge than Dr. Evans. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with his National Church Adopt-A-School initiative 
that is a role model to communities across the nation. And he shares just a really inspiring story about how his church, they actually got a request from a local school to help them deal with the gang issues and things that were happening. This is in Dallas, Texas. And then eventually, you know, it went from like five schools to 32 schools, something like that, to just a whole, eventually grew into a whole national program and think what would happen if if churches everywhere adopted schools in their neighborhood. So he was the perfect person to bring this challenge, and he certainly didn't pull any punches with it. Um, he really did challenge pastors to step it up, be the salt and light in your community. And so let me just mention that this is the first of a two-part series. And if you know anything about Dr. Evans, you know it is well worth hearing the entire, both parts. So stay tuned for the second part next week. But without further ado, here is Dr. Evans giving a talk entitled, The Church, the Kingdom, and Community Transformation. I'm going to take my session this morning, and I will want to lay a theological foundation, apply it to education, and then this afternoon I will expand more on the theological foundation. So the education piece will be put in between, sandwiched in between uh, theological uh, uh, framing. I'm at my core an ecclesiologist, that is, I believe in the church. And having passed it for 47 years, uh, I am committed to the centrality of the church for a number of reasons. But it is unfortunate today that the church has become misdefined and redefined and underdefined by the culture because it has missed a theological premise that I think is foundational even to the purpose of the gathering here today. Tonight at 8 o'clock Eastern Time, the Dallas Cowboys will be playing and hopefully beating the Seattle Seahawks. What that means is that for three hours, there's going to be a conflict on the field. For three hours, there's going to be a clash that cannot be negotiated. And the reason why the clash cannot be negotiated is because the teams are headed in two totally different directions. One is going this way, the other is going that way, and the conflict is unresolvable, cannot be fixed. But in the middle of these two competing realities will be a third team called the team of officials. These are seven officials who have been designated from 345 Park Avenue in New York, where the NFL offices are, to the field in Dallas, and they are to represent the kingdom in Park Avenue in the middle of the chaos in Dallas. These seven officials will be very distinguishable. There will be black and white jerseys on. And while they will not change the conflict, they are responsible to manage it so that things don't get out of hand. Now, the way they're going to do that is that that kingdom in, on Park Avenue has given each one of these officials a book. This book gives all the governing guidelines by which all decisions are to be made on the field of play. Their personal opinions have to be subject to that book. 
the preferences of the teams that they like or do not like become irrelevant because their decisions have to be sacrosanct to that book. Now they understand clearly sometimes they're gonna be booed because the visiting team is not going to like the call that they make. They, make, they understand sometimes they're gonna be cheered. That is because the home crowd and the home team will like the call that they make. But they also understand that popularity is not the reason for their placement. They have one goal, and that is to rule on the field based on the book they've received from the kingdom that gave it to them. And that is their obligation. Now, these seven officials are going to be outnumbered. They're outnumbered by the home crowd and the home team. They know that if it comes down to numbers, they lose. But they also understand they've been delegated authority from New York on the field of play. And while the players are younger, stronger, and faster, and the refs are older, slower, and fatter, they clearly understand that the players have power, but they have kingdom authority. They've been given the right to rule. It is unfortunate today that God's representatives in history have done what no official would do in a game, and that is join the competing teams. Have taken off their kingdom jerseys and have done in its stead political attire, racial attire, social attire, and have lost their distinctiveness. And that is unfortunately because they have missed the one subject of the Bible, and the Bible only has one subject, and that is the glory of God through the advancement of his kingdom. That is the central theme of scripture. Everything, and I mean everything, is subject to that one theme. And it is this framing, this worldview, if you could, would call it that, that has to be understood that the church does not exist for the church. The church exists for the kingdom. And the kingdom is bigger than the church. And that God has a representative group of people and a representative agency in history who are to represent the interest of heaven in the chaos of culture. They are to represent the interest of eternity in the confusion of time. They are to represent heaven on earth as the Lord's prayer so designates. The first use of the word church in the Bible is in Matthew 16. Jesus uses it and he says in verse 18, and I will build my church. The word church is never found in the Bible until Matthew 16. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. But that was not a Christian word that was part of Greek society, Koine Greek. It would be a regularly spoken word because the Roman Senate was called the Ecclesia. It was a legislative body. So whenever you were walking up and down the streets of Rome as it has been Hellenized by Greek thought, you would hear them referring to a legal body as an Ecclesia. 
It's even used that way in the New Testament in Acts chapter 19, verses 38 to 41, where the Greek word ekklesia is used twice, but not to refer to a Christian church, it's used to refer to a court that was getting ready to legislate against Christianity. But it was called the ecclesia. So Jesus borrows a word from the culture to define what he would be building. He is building the ecclesia. Most of the time when we talk about church, we're talking about a place where people go to sing, to preach, to pray, to fellowship, to be discipled. All of that is certainly concomitant to the role and the responsibility of the church. But rarely do we hear the church discussed in its legal format. That is, its role to legislate from heaven into history because the word church was a legislative body. America has representative institutions in every country around the world. These representative institutions, these places where America is situated on foreign soil. If you get in trouble, you want to get across an embassy gate because the moment you cross the American embassy gate, you're in America now. Because all embassies are sovereign territory. They do not belong to the country they're in, they belong to the country they're from. And their goal is to represent the interest of America on foreign soil. What God has established are embassies called the church who is to represent the interests of heaven on the foreign soil of this world order so that the values of heaven are being transmitted and translated and communicated to the culture in which it finds itself. It is not to acquiesce to the culture, it is to represent the interest of the homeland in the culture so that this culture should know, feel, hear, and understand what heaven thinks about every subject because heaven has a representative agency in every community and that representative agency is called the church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Please notice in verse 18 of Matthew 16, Jesus says, I'm doing the building, hell is doing the stopping. I'm on offense, hell is on defense. So the way you know the church is my church is that I'm winning. So if I'm not winning, it can't be my church, it must be your church using my name. And what we're finding today is how can we have all these churches on all these corners with all these preachers and all these members and all these leaders and all these programs and still have all this mess? There's a dead monkey on the line somewhere. He said, the church that I am building, I am winning and hell is not prevailing. What will make this legal body that's spiritual in nature representative and impactful in history? He says in verse 18, I'm going to give it the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to give the church the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, what do you do with keys? You gain access to your house, to your car, to your office. Keys, according to Isaiah 22:22, 22, 22, is to gain access. I'm going to give the church that I am building 
keys. I'm not going to give it one key. I'm going to give it a key ring. Now, I don't know if you've ever lost your keys, but uh, if you are, that means you're not going nowhere. It means you're stuck. I'm going to give you keys, but I'm going to give you keys plural. And the reason I'm going to give you keys plural is because verse 18 gives gates plural. So for every hellish gate, there's a corresponding kingdom key to unlock a kingdom door to respond to a hellish gate that wants to stop the church from being what I've created it to be. He says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom and I'm going to give you access to heaven's authority so that you will have my support when you use your keys that I'm handing you in order to address hell's attempt to stop me from having my place in society. So it is the job of the church to represent the kingdom of God, which is the comprehensive rule of God. The Greek word for kingdom is basilia. Basilia means rule or authority. We call it the kingdom agenda, the visible manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of life. So there's no such thing for a biblical church as a distinction between secular and sacred. Everything becomes sacred because the kingdom rules over all. There is nothing and no one who sits outside of the reign of God, the rule of God, or the authority of God, thus kingdom. Therefore, there can be no discussion by any pastor about something that is secular. You now are to sanctify everything you touch because you've been given kingdom keys, not church keys. But if you think the church has the keys, then you're only concerned about the church. But if you understand that the kingdom has the keys, then you're concerned about the kingdom through the church. So most churches live for the church and do not exist for the kingdom. And the only reason the church exists is to use kingdom keys in the culture. So important is the church for cultural well-being that Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says, that God checks with the church before he deals with the principalities and powers. So he's not going to skip the church house to fix the White House. He's not going to skip what he's called his embassy to do and to be in order to satisfy the culture. He will work through the church, but he will not bypass the church because that is his designated embassy in the culture. So knowing that, it would be of the enemy's advantage to dumb down the definition and impact of the church or have it using illegitimate keys. I remember I was in New York one day at the Marriott Marquis Hotel. And uh, in New York at the Marriott Marquis, I checked out. It was the dead of winter. I had to fly to Chicago. When I got to Chicago, I got to the Hilton Hotel. Large hotel, I went up 30-some floors, got there, put my key in the lock, click, click, red light, click, click, red light, click, click, red light. I'm a little bit evangelically ticked off now because I've gone all the way up here and it's cold outside. And so I go back downstairs, I go to the front desk, I say, this, I'm sorry, sir, this key does not work. He said, that's because that key doesn't go to this hotel. <laughs> I had failed to throw away my Marriott key and I was using a Marriott key and a Hilton lock and those kingdoms don't mix. What the church has done is it's gone secular and using secular keys and wonder why heaven's not responding. God has given us kingdom authority, but only with kingdom keys. And those keys are designed to respond to gates. And gates in the Bible is where the elders met to legislate. 
So you and I as uh, clergy and as church leaders have a legal responsibility. That is a cultural engagement that goes beyond our preaching and teaching until it infiltrates the culture so that people know that they have a kingdom responsibility to their identity. So that a politician who knows Christ understand they're just not a politician, they're God's representative in politics. So the politics gets to know what God looks like when God legislates. So that a doctor is not just a doctor, they're God's representative in the medical field. So the medical field sees what God looks like when God helps hurting people. So that a lawyer understands they're not just a lawyer, they're God's representative in the bar association. So the bar association gets to see what God looks like when God tries a case. That a business person is not just a business person, that God's representative of business, so the business world gets to see what God looks like when God cuts a deal. It is to understand that we are to kingdomize our churches so that they infiltrate our culture and so that an educator comes to understand. They're not just an educator if they're a believer, they're God's representative in education so that that world gets to see what God looks like when God teaches truth. And so he concludes verse 19 with this statement. Never whatever you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, I will loose in heaven. Binding and loosing is permitting or disallowing, permitting or forbidding. But he doesn't do the binding and loosing. He says whatever you bind, and whatever you lose. So while we're waiting on God, God is actually waiting on us. Because until you bind, he won't bind. And until you lose, I lose, he won't lose. He will only do it in response to our action. All through the scripture, you will see God doing his great work, but only after the people moved. It would only when Moses raised the rod that the water would open. It would only be when the priests stepped in the banks of the Jordan that the Jordan would open. It would only be when Martha moved the stone that Lazarus would be raised. It would only be when the people moved that God would move because then they would have demonstrated faith. And they would have walked by faith, not just talked by faith. So when you understand, and I understand, that the kingdom role of the church that this is the worldview of scripture, that we, 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 we understand that everything visible and physical is always first preceded by something invisible and spiritual. So that if you want to change the visible physical, you must identify the invisible spiritual that relates to the visible physical. And when you address the invisible spiritual that relates to the visible physical, you can change the visible physical because you've identified the preceding invisible spiritual that informed it. And so it is the job of spiritual leaders to extract from heaven deliver into history what God has to say on every subject. And in this case, the concern is education. Now, all truth is God's truth. There are two answers to every subject, God's answer and everybody else's. And everybody else is wrong when they disagree with God. And everything on which God speaks, he speaks perfectly. Therefore, it is our responsibility to make sure that truth is being transmitted cross-generationally. Why? 
because God did not create children merely so we could have biological lookalikes. He created children so that the knowledge of God would be replicated cross-generationally. Joshua says in Joshua chapter 4, he comes to the conclusion, and as was quoted here earlier, he says, I want you to transfer the knowledge of these stones to your children, and then he says, so that the whole earth will know about the Lord. So you transfer so that as they spread out and build their own families and build their own lives, with the transference of their lives comes the transference of the knowledge of God. So we have to make sure that whether it's math or science or biology or physics or civics or whatever the subject matter is, it has been infused with the knowledge of God. Now, when many of us were growing up, we grew up with an environment that had a shared Judeo-Christian framing. Everybody wasn't Christian, but a Judeo-Christian framing informed most of life. So that what you heard at school was similar to what you heard at church, was similar to what you heard at home, because there was a cultural framing. This framing now has been frayed. This framing has been dumbed down so that now you do not find that being normalized in society. So now we are dealing with pagan institutions that are working against the knowledge of God in the churches that are now called schools. And it is in that environment that we must make sure that the influence of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are not controlling the knowledge base of our children. Now, I know we are all fighting for school choice, which I think a better term is parental choice because the Bible would deem it that way, that education belongs in the hands of parents. We have the same fight that you've had up here in Virginia taking place with Governor Abbott in Dallas as we speak on this uh, parental choice issue. Uh, but we don't know how long that's going to take, and we don't know how many states are going to take it up. So, so we can't wait around for the government to fix it, okay? Because the government is also dependent upon what other people think who do not share our value system. So we can't wait on them to be kingdom representatives. So the question is, what is the role of the church in kingdomizing the next generation in the context and the vortex of education? Well, a number of years ago, uh, there is a school about a mile and a half from our church called Carter High School. And it was having great problems of gangs and truancy and a myriad of things that were taking place that were uh, creating chaos in the school. The school approached us and said, is there anything you can do to help us? And so many years ago, we decided to adopt that school. We started with 13 men and the 13 men would go and they would walk the hallways uh, uh, during the lunch hour. Then they would go and sit at the lunch tables. So they had a male presence in the school. Well, what happened was the mere presence of our men walking the halls and engaging with the students, a lot of them, the students of single parents, uh, began to change the atmosphere in the school. 
So grades went up, truancy went down, and order began to take place simply by our presence. As our church began to grow, we began to offer services to the families of these students. And uh, whether it was food or clothes or counseling or whatever we could offer at that time in the life of our church. The principal of the school got promoted to become the head of the district. The district was 18 schools. He calls me and he says, you know what you did to this one school? Would you mind adopting my whole district? So we adopted then the 18 schools and we made this a ministry of our church where one of the things you could volunteer to do is become a mentor in one of these 18 schools. 18 schools then became 32 schools. 32, 32 schools became 45 schools. So currently we are having a presence in 45 schools, just our one church, and what we provide is mentoring, tutoring, and family support services to the at-risk families in that school. We go in as a social service provider, even though we're a church, just like a corporation that adopts a school. So we don't go in proselytizing, we go in as servants. But because we are a church, we can inform them of the things at the church that we can offer the families in the school. Now you think about it. There are about 190,000 or so public schools. They're like 400,000 Christian churches. So if every school got adopted by one church and provided mentoring and tutoring and family support services to the at-risk students in that school, not only would we be doing a good thing, we would be doing a good work. Now let me explain. The Bible does not call us to do good things because sinners can do good things. Pagans can do good things and atheists can do good things. We're called, Matthew 5, 16, to do good work. The difference between a good thing and a good work is God is attached to a good work. He may not be attached to a good thing. Let men see your good works and glorify your father, not their father, your father. Glorify your father who is in heaven. So a good work, a good thing becomes a good work when God becomes attached to it. So what we began to do was use natural times before school or during the lunch hour when it was a more flexible time, uh, not to interfere with any of the academic things of the school, to begin to have either special meetings. And so you could volunteer now for one person to take, one lady to take four girls or one man to take four boys, meet with them one hour a week. We had these special gatherings then where we invite them to our church. We're with them, we will share the gospel because they're now on church property. But because we were social servants in the school, the parents would bring them to the church. Many of the parents then began joining our church. And it dawned on me that what we were doing with our one church in Dallas could be nationalized. And that led to uh, the National Adopt the School Initiative. So what we do through the Urban Alternative, which is our national ministry, one of the things, you have a brochure on your table, we have this three-part uh, program. And this three-part program, which is a kingdom strategy for community transformation, involves three things. First of all, it involves a symbol. Now, by a symbol, it's where we say, the church is in a community, you come together and you come together and bring your congregations together once a year for a solemn assembly. Now, a solemn assembly in scripture is a sacred gathering 
A sacred gathering was always called when there was a crisis. Isaiah 58, there's a crisis. So you call a sacred gathering, you stop normal activity, and you call on God to come into the midst of the crisis that you're facing. We have a crisis with our children in the culture and in education today. So the churches will come together. We show them how to do this. And for one day, they fast and pray for their community. Now, the reason why a symbol is key, uh, I'm covering a lot of territory here, but stick with me for just a few more minutes. The reason why a symbol is key is God will always and only work to the level of your unity. Let me say that. This is the theological principle. There's one God composed of three, three co-equal persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but it's like a pretzel with three holes. First hole is not second hole, second hole is not the third hole, but they all tie together by the same dough. Okay? Divine nature. So God always operates in sync with himself. Okay? So that's why there's so much in the Bible about unity, because God cannot function in a disunified environment as his unified self. And that is why he even tells a couple, he says the husbands and wives are in conflict. Tell the husband don't pray, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, because his prayers are hindered. He said, Jesus says in John chapter 17, verses 23 to 25, Lord, make them one so that they will see my glory. So to the level of your unity, you will find the level of his presence. And since we can all say we're concerned about children and education and families, then even with our denominational differences, we can now coalesce around a common vision and assemble around common concerns in our community. And to the level of our unity will be the level of God's presence. He then, and, and then after they've assembled, we say address. That's the second A in the three-point plan. The second A simply says that you speak with one voice. When you speak with one voice, you declare God's position on a clear principle. We've got clear principles that they're two genders. That shouldn't be debated by any Christian church. We've got clear principles on, on, on uh, the value of life. We've got, we've got clear principles. We must speak with one voice, those who are biblically minded churches, so that they know this is not just this church over here and this church over here. This group that's called this assemble of churches, represented by its leaders, speak with one voice on the things affecting our community, and we speak with clarity, with love, but with clarity. Everybody else is coming out the closet. We need to come out too. So we need to speak with biblical clarity, with a loving spirit to the culture and to our educational institutions. And then the third one is you act. The act is where you do something collectively that improves the well-being of the community. Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city in which I have placed you, for in its well-being you will have well-being. So make the city a better place to live. And he's talking about Babylon, which was a pagan place. So he's talking about America, which is a pagan place. So he says, seek the welfare of the environment in which I have placed you. So the collective churches that come together are to make Richmond or Dallas or where we are a better place to live simply because we're there and heaven has been situated in its midst as kingdom representative churches. And one of the best ways to do that is through the adoption of schools. 
If every school got adopted in Virginia by a solid church or a group of churches, so, and if they could do it cross-racially so you would have reconciliation through service, not through seminars. We don't need seminars. We need serving together. You, when, when you're in a battle, when you're in a war, you don't care about the color, class, or culture of the person fighting next to you as long as they're shooting in the same direction you are. So, so you, 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 you come together cross-racially, cross-culturally, and we're going to adopt this school. The pastor or pastors meets with the principal. What are the needs of your needy students in this school? And then the church takes what it's already doing or already has the capacity to do, and it makes available. The principal is feeling great because now their stock is going up because they're bringing in positive help to the school. The families are improving that need the help, whether it's uh, counseling or food or clothes or emergency help. Now the schools, our 45 schools call us when there's an emergency. The teachers, even the teachers call us. I meet with the principals twice a year. They come to our church for us to pray for them and all of that. You can do that and you don't have to create anything new because the families exist, the school exists, the churches exist. All you're creating is a dating service. And when you create the dating service, by connecting them, then you are now influencing them without changing who you are as a church because you're social service providers. But because you are a church and because we are interested in the gospel, we want to make sure that they get to hear the good news, but we do it in a way that allows them to come to us because we've come to them. We're, what we're doing is uh, chapter uh, four of John. When Jesus met the woman at the well, he asked for a drink of water. Okay, he started with a, she was shocked. You mean, you want to put your Jewish lips to my Samaritan cup? And that opened the door for him to share with her living water. So he started with a social need, a social connection, but he turned it into a gospel presentation. If you and I would adopt every school in our communities and have a presence to our capacity, so this is very scalable. You could have a 40-member church or a 4,000-member church, and you only do what is scalable to your capacity at that time. And if it's a combination of churches, this church may offer this, this church may offer that. So we've developed this whole training program. It's, it's online. We even have a training team that comes if there's a large enough group to your area. The Tony Evans Training Center uh, has this three-point plan. It connects you to a whole training for how you can set this up in your church for your school. And that's what we do across the country to kingdomize the church for the purpose of the next generation. And now, if you adopt every school, you have now reached every kid and you never run out of ministry because you always have new kids coming to the school. So it's an ongoing ministry without creating anything new for the next generation that's to be impacted for the kingdom of God so that the knowledge of God can be transmitted and translated throughout the whole earth. That's what kingdom thinking does. This is a, a, a just a short summary of who we are and, and what we seek to do through our national ministry that we started in Dallas and now we're taking around the country and that is in your brochure there are a lot of other things you can do. You can adopt every police precinct so that the church becomes the bridge between the police department and the community. We have a national kindness campaign where every member of the church can get from us a kindness card. We'll put your church name on it and you do one act of kindness once a week so that now hundreds and thousands of people in this mean world are doing acts of kindness and on the card is the gospel presentation so that when you feed them or you clothe them or you help them across the street or you 
put bags in the car, whatever act of kindness you do, you can you pray with them and then you share the gospel or they get the gospel code so that now people can spread out just as their everyday life. And then on the card is your church's name so they know the church of the people who are doing kindness all around the community. So these are things that can be done easily by the church that's kingdom focused so that the culture gets to see when you live in this neighborhood, you can't escape us because we're going to be everywhere you are. We're going to love you, but we're going to love you with the truth. And that is what God is calling kingdom churches to do. You know, in television, and um, I'll conclude with this, in television and uh, movies, they show you previews of coming attractions, right? These are always the hot clips of the upcoming show. Fight scene, love scene, chase scene. They're all threaded together because they want you to tune into the whole movie. Now, it may be a terrible movie, but you'd never know it from the clips because the clips are always hot clips next to each other. Well, one day there's a big show coming to town. God is the producer. The Holy Spirit is the director. Jesus is the superstar, and it will be a worldwide production. It's called the King Kingdom of God. In the meantime, he's left you and me here as previews of coming attractions. See, we're supposed to be the hot clips of the upcoming show. We're supposed to be the hot clips of what is to come. So that when people see the clips, they'll want to buy a ticket to the whole show. Of course, that's what we can tell them. You don't have to buy a ticket. The price has already been paid. I just really loved the examples he gave of how we are God's representatives, you know, whether it's the NFL umpires, I really like that one because it really brought home this idea that we're not supposed to over-identify with either side. We have our own playbook, which is the kingdom playbook, and we are answering to a higher authority. So he had several examples like that to kind of put things in perspective for us. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think he does a really good job painting a visual for his audience. So I, I liked the example of the embassy, that like the, this idea that you're on foreign soil, and that but you're, but you're there to represent your homeland and for us that's obviously heaven that we're there to be not blending in you know back to this you know not blending in not being like not negotiating you're really there to represent your kingdom and i also liked at the you know towards the end where he's talking about you know the trailers and movies and you know it's yeah. always the best part of the movie or the best part of the show and and his concept is that christians are supposed to be that glimpse of heaven like the preview of what is ahead yeah. and boy that that changes how you live your life every day, right? If it you really think of yourself does. as like you're supposed to be the preview for heaven, that's a that's a wow. That's a high calling. Let's put it yeah, that way. Yeah, I I gotta think about what kind of um, he called it. I think he called it like hot take previews. Yes. Or, I mean, I don't know what kind of hot take previews people are getting. So I really gotta think about that. It's definitely a personal challenge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I guess we all have our good and our bad moments, but there's room for growth there. Um, but you got to love the mic drop moment at the end of Dr. Evans' speech when he said, they'll want to buy a ticket to the whole show. Yeah. Of course, that's when we can tell them, you don't have to buy a ticket. The price has it's already free. been paid. So <laughs> love good. That. Yeah, he's excellent. I mean, there's just no way getting around Yeah. That. Well, okay, before we wind up today, 
I did want to mention that Dr. Evans was talking about the role that church leaders, pastors can play in the education sphere. And so, first of all, I want to encourage you to share this with your pastor. Definitely get this link to your pastor, to your church leaders that you feel like need to hear this, because there's so much that can be done in your own community. And along those lines, I wanted to mention some days of action that we have coming up in the General Assembly. This is going to be in January when our representatives come back to the Capitol and start making laws. And we need, they need to hear from the pastors. They need to hear your voices. So first up is, you know, appropriate to this topic today, School Choice Day, which is going to be on January 24th. I think that's a, that's a Wednesday, January 24th. Yeah, and this is when people come down and we're really talking about how do we get educational opportunities for all kids? Because some of these pastors just don't realize that there is, isn't just about homeschool and Christian kids. There are kids that can't, have no other financial ability to be anywhere but in the public school. And how are we going to make that possible for them here in Virginia? Yeah, and we are expecting both on the attack front, we, we are expecting some leftists at the state capitol to attack the only scholarship program we have right now that's helping thousands of impoverished students be able to thrive and have the choice of going to a school that reflects their family's values. So we need your voices to prevent that from happening, as well as trying to advocate for more choice and education freedom for families. And I do want to mention one other day out there, the day that I really love and look forward to, and that's Mama Bear Day. Papa Bears are welcome too. We always say that, but mark your calendar for that. It's going to be all about parental rights, Thursday, February 15th. So with that, did you want to throw any note on that before I wrap up here? No, but it's a fun day. And I think the legislators um, actually enjoy it. They kind of get a kick out of the idea that like, oh, we've seen about these. We've seen these moms on the news. We see them in our school boards yeah. and now they're down here. So. They are here. And dads and Papa Bears. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. As always, please remember to share our Speak Up Virginia playlist with others so we can get the word out to more people. And remember, we are stronger when we speak together.